to the Therapeutic Parenting Podcast, coming to you from COECT, which stands for the Centre of Excellence in Child Trauma. We provide proven strategies to help people living and working with child trauma. In this second series, our experts are focusing on tackling specific problem areas like sibling rivalry, dissociation and parental isolation. I'm Serena Gay, your host, and today we're talking to a new guest expert, Sammy Byrne, about school transitions. Sammy Byrne is mum to two adopted boys, and she has got 24 years experience as a teacher working on senior leadership teams in inner city schools. She's also a therapeutic lead for the NATP, that's the National Association of Therapeutic Parents, to provide empathic listening sessions, allowing parents to offload the worries they have about their children. And she's studying for a master's in psychotherapeutic counselling. Hello, Sammy. Welcome to your first interview on the Therapeutic Parenting Podcast. Hello. Hi, Serena. (laughs) It's lovely to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Sammy, you're ideally placed with all your teaching experience and as an adoptive parent too, to talk about school transitions. Now, I'm presuming that you've witnessed a lot of children having difficulties at the very start of their school career. So can you put us in the picture as to why a child who suffered trauma would particularly find starting school difficult at all? Yes, of course. Children who have experienced any trauma, including neglect, any abuse or any traumatic experience and that they've had, that can be in utero and or it can be after they're born, you know, they are going to have a developmental delay. There's no getting away from that. They're going to have developmental trauma. Those adverse childhood experiences, which we actually call ACEs, affects actually the neurological development and the pathways in the brain. I know previously you've spoken to Glynis in the first season podcast about the internal working model and how that's formed from the from birth to about three years of age and that's and that's through the attachment behaviors from a primary caregiver from my own experience when we adopted our boys I had you know my eldest at home for nearly a year and then he went to school but in that year you know when I look back now he wasn't securely attached to me and I was sending him out this was all before I knew about therapeutic parenting before I understood these things I thought I was doing the best thing for him to send him to nursery and to send him to school because I thought he'll be absolutely fine you know he, he will be once he's in school he will make friends and everything that, and everything would just be fine but it isn't it was actually really difficult for him so when I think back to that now he, you know he'd been with us a year that wasn't very long for him to build that relationship to, to have me as a secure base which a lot of children who haven't gone through any sort of trauma they've built that secure base with their parents of a very very early age from from birth our children haven't had that at all What kind of behaviours then can you expect children with ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences in their backgrounds? What what kind of behaviours can you expect them to display in the school environment that that teachers would would see coming out? 
if you like, you can sort of almost categorize, you know, children <laughs> into different behaviors. So you can have the compliant child. So the compliant child, more often than not, you know, and I'm, I'm talking here from a key stage one experience because that's where a lot of my experience is. So they are, you know, from a young age, they are the ones that will have the smile on the face. You know, they will, but that's actually what is known as a fake smile because the, the lips, you know, you've got this fixed grin. The lips are too far apart. It's a forced smile. And they just want you basically to, to not pick them for anything. If they look like they're smiling, they look like they know what they're doing, but actually they don't. They're like a swan, if you like. They've got this smile on their face or a duck, you know, underneath their little legs, are, you know, paddling along at a, a, you know, at a tremendous speed. They hope that you just don't pick them for any, to ask, answer any questions whatsoever. They will always be okay if you do ask them a question. If you do ask them and say, oh, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, everything is fine. So they, they won't actually be honest with you. They are super helpful and they will agree to do anything. But more often than not, they don't know actually what they're agreeing to do. So, you know, they certainly won't, won't want to ask you for help or they won't certainly ask you for instructions. They're so focused on being that perfectly behaved child in class. And because of that, sometimes they aren't noticed as well for what their actual emotional needs can be. You can also have the fidgety child. So the fidgety child, you know, just cannot sit still. <laughs> they really can't. They've got an acute anxiety. More often than not, they can have a sensory processing disorder. That cortisol is just racing around their bodies, which makes them so anxious. It is impossible for them to sit still. If you say to them something like, can you just go and get the felt tips from out of the cupboard and give them out to each group? They more often than not will have just heard felt tips and group. So they will very often will go to the cupboard and they might just go and actually get the, the felt tips out for their group only. You know, they just find everything so difficult. The, the stress in their bodies just becomes too much for them. It really does appear as if they've got ADHD. Very often, it, it seems like they haven't got any control of their body. They also need to wiggle, stand up. They can be tapping the pencils, messing with the books or anything like that. Many children from trauma do have those challenges. Then we also have the aggressive child. Now, the aggressive child is the, bless them, is the, the one that is ready to fight in a split second. They can think that somebody's having a go at them. So they can be incredibly defensive. They're the ones who have to show themselves as being big and strong and appearing not afraid. We talk at, you know, Coect about children's behavior being a communication. And what an aggressive child is showing is actually that they are afraid, but it's deep rooted. And you know, and it links to their own traumatic experiences. So if you corner a child like that, or if they feel threatened or they feel unsafe, at any point, they will attack. That's what they will do. Then you can also have the runaway child. So the runaway child is the one that becomes overwhelmed. And, you know, they don't use fight as a survival response. Instead, they use the flight, they run. And in that, they're not using their prefrontal cortex part of the brain, you know, which is the rational thinking part. Therefore, they won't be thinking about any safety aspect. I've, you know, I have had experience with this as well, where I've had a child that came to a school that I worked at. She would scale a six foot fence and she would escape. 
no concept whatsoever about what is going you know there was it was close to a main road that she'd run across the road no concept of that whatsoever so they're not thinking about their own danger you can also have what we call the forgetful child and there is so much research and more research that is is being done that can tell you know that confirms that children with a developmental trauma more often than not, have got a reduced processing speed within their brains. So that means that their working memory capacity is reduced. So things like uh, a verbal recall, repeating something back to you that you've actually said to them, their attention ability, concentration skills, they are all affected because they just cannot process all of that information at once. Sometimes with those children as well, if the stress becomes too much in the classroom, they'll just stare into space and they can then even disassociate um, because actually that's the body's way of coping with the stress. They can be seen as incredibly forgetful. We also have, you know, there's children as well that can be like who refuse help. They would completely refuse. So and these are the ones that people will often say, aren't they independent? Aren't they clever? Don't get me wrong. Some children are naturally like that. Some children who have had that secure attachment with their parents, they're naturally very independent. But I'm just talking about developmentally traumatized children. And for those, you know, those children that have got a history of trauma, then they really, you know, they do too much for themselves. And they have this innate distrust of adults. That's where it comes from. You also have the attention needing child. So this is the child who is the absolute opposite to the compliant child. This child, the attention needing child, is the one that will constantly remind you, you know, that you're not going to forget about them. So they will be the one that will put their hand up for every single question, even though they don't know the answer. They might talk to you about something completely irrelevant, but it's a chance to be heard. That's why I've got my hand up because you're walking to hear me. Please don't forget about me. This behavior is actually driven by anxiety. And the anxiety comes from them not believing. When I talked earlier about the internal working model, this anxiety is driven that they don't think that they will be able to achieve. So therefore, if I disrupt in the classroom, I won't have to shame myself. I won't be embarrassed at the fact that I can't do this work and I'm not good enough because they just think that everything that they do is rubbish. So therefore, by disrupting, they haven't got to concentrate on their work. A hypervigilant child is constantly on the lookout for danger. They never feel safe. They need to see where everybody is in the class. So they are constantly scanning around. They will clock everything in the classroom where it is they know where every every tiny little thing is they are listening for noises they are listening for footsteps for any bangs anything that is different at all so that means that inevitably a hypervigilant child isn't actually listening to you the, the reason that they're doing this is because it's a clear example of actually their severe early trauma and the effects that it's actually had on the way that they interact with the world They need lots of reassurance and support. I've taught children like that in the past. My own son was one that was very hypervigilant when he first started school. I remember teaching a child many years ago who used to have to just let her wander. The school was safe. She couldn't get out of the school building, but used to have to just let her wander. And the same with my son. I know that he used to walk up and down the corridors and he didn't want to disrupt anybody's classroom, but he just wanted to go and see what the other children are doing. He'd got a 
brilliant teacher, brilliant uh, TA support as well. They would let him just go and have a look, see where everybody else was, and then he'd be happy. And then he'd go back to his back to his classroom and he'd get on. But it's that fear. It's all coming from this fear-based behaviour. You can imagine, can't you, how disruptive all these different kinds of behaviour can be for a teacher in a classroom and how you would have to be really very talented to be able to cope with it. But it's funny because listening to you explaining all these different types of behaviours, you know, explains so much, doesn't it, about one's own school experience. Admittedly, mine is a long (laughs) time ago, but it's still, when I look back on it, some of the characters that you're talking about here, I think, gosh, yes, you know, I remember that. I remember that. So it just goes to show how how these things manifest. So definitely. If we then perhaps can move on to talking about how we can make the transition to school for these kids as smooth as possible what yeah you know if we're talking to people who are listening to this who know they you know they've got children who perhaps are safely attached now yeah. to them but they're looking at the next stage which is the transition to school what yeah. what can they be doing to prepare their child for this new venture from a parent's point of view I would say the biggest thing I think that you can actually do is to talk to your children, is to play with them. There's always this pressure from parents that they think that their children have got to go into school and know all of their numbers or know all of their sounds and write their names and things like that. No, the social and emotional side of things is so important. They will learn all their letters, they will learn all their sounds and they will learn to read in school. That will all happen. But to get this transition right, play with them play with them you know you can do modeling play about actually going to school and things like that you can go past the school you know take them on a little journey a little walk walk past the school I wouldn't make too big a thing of it to be quite honest but you need to just let them have that communication if they want to talk about being at school let them and then move on don't make a big thing of it because I think that can cause more anxiety And certainly for children, you know, with developmental trauma, they would certainly find it more. But you can there are things that you can do. They will have school visits. A lot of schools will actually go to if they're in preschool, for example, if they're at a nursery, a teacher will go and observe them in their own setting because you get more of an idea of seeing them in their own setting than you do actually when they first come to school. You know, when they have their little play days, if you like. And obviously pre-COVID times. Many schools will do, you know, used to do this for half a term. They'd be having children in for half, you know, half a day or something like that. They might lead up to lunchtime and let the children have a lunchtime in there as well. You know, they might send home little um, documents, little booklets to find out more information because they will then plan. Teachers will plan around what the children's likes and dislikes are so that they can help the children to settle as much as possible. If your child isn't ready, you can ask for um, a phased start to it as well. It might be that for half a term in September onwards, it might be that you actually say to them, can we just phase it so that they only do mornings or something like that? Will the schools always be amenable to being flexible in that way? They should be. They should be. Because bear in mind as well that a child doesn't need to be in school until they are five years of age. So if they are going into school at four years of age, you have got that flexibility. I think with my son, I wish I had done a little bit of that now. I think I... 
he seemed to cope very well with it but he's a typical compliant child my mm-hmm. eldest is mm-hmm. so and for me I thought that that was great I thought oh he's absolutely loving it but I think now yeah I could have taken it a little bit slower with him and more at his rate and I think if I ever had that time back again I would do that with him mm-hmm. I definitely would so preparation and really taking your time so yeah. the child the child has an opportunity to just get used to the whole new routine and the new yeah. demands there's so many things you know there's so many resources that are out there as well that will help this so you know even reading books with the children about you know I know there's a great story called uh, Harry and the Dinosaur Set and you know or Topsy and Tim Start School there's all those books that you can actually share with your child as well which starts to get the child thinking about the routine and starts to think about the structure and things. But it's at the end of the day, reception teachers want to make this transition as easy as they can for children. And they want to make it so that the children aren't scared. So moving beyond then the key yeah. stage one point to, to key stage two, I mean, yes. there are new difficulties, aren't there, that arise at, these, at this stage. What, what are they and how can you cope with them? Do you know, Serena... Key stage one to key stage two is one that for years was forgotten about. It was just taken for granted. Children just move from key stage one to key stage two. Everything's fine. And I think teachers over the years have started to realise, actually, there's a little bit more of a difference than you realise. So more and more teachers are becoming aware of that importance from moving to, you know, key stage one to key stage two. And that can be for some schools, it can be in a different building. If you've got a split split uh, site school, you're going from one place to another. So all of a sudden, they're having to almost like back with reception children. They're going to have uh, they're going back to learning about where to walk in. Might have different entrances, different exits, different toilets. Going into the hall in a different place. So for a child with you know who has difficulties with the, uh, working memory. This actually is, is, is quite daunting, it's quite scary. So and not only that, there's a, and the added uh, disadvantage, if you like, to a degree for some children, that not only are they having to meet new teachers and learn new routines, which obviously they do in year one and year two, but by year three, there's this expectancy to be a little bit more independent. So, and to retain a lot more of their knowledge, there's new subjects foreign languages can be introduced and things all these things impact upon the child they can also be a reduced playtime and the work rate that the children when they move to year three can be expected to be a lot more than they were doing in year two more and more year three teachers are realizing that actually they still do need that little bit of a nurture because they're still very young so what can the parent do then to help the child or the teacher for that matter as well Yeah, I think one of the biggest things, and I would say this throughout any transition of any change, whether it be through preschool, whether it be at high school, I would say parents' communication, having that open communication with a teacher is absolutely utmost. For you as a parent to actually go in and speak, if you can, speak to the um, teacher, you will have little strategies that you use at home. Ask the teacher, year three teacher, if it is that there could be some sort of communication during the six weeks holiday, during the the school holidays, whether it just be a postcard, you know, whether it is that the year three teacher can send the child a postcard, can't wait for you to start school, anything like that. And if that's coming from the year three teacher, then that just shows to the child 
wow, I'm being thought about. You know, the teacher does care about me. So when they are coming in and you know, into the year three classroom and they've got new cloakrooms, new, you know, new desks, different desks to sit at, different room, all of those things that are going on already that relationship with the teacher is beginning to be established because it's oh they did they I contacted them in the holiday and that was absolutely fine and then of course there are further problems associated with the next transition to (laughs) secondary school or high school and so what measures can be taken then to make sure that this next step in sort of a more sophisticated style of school how that can be made to work Oh gosh, Serena, this is I mean, this is where I'm at as well at the moment. My son is going up into to high school. The biggest thing, more than anything, this I would ask for is an enhanced transition. And by that I mean because all children have transition to high school. So that could be whether they go and normally, you know, a, a normal world, they would go and visit the high school once or twice. So, you know, that should still go. I I would ask for more than that. I, you know, they can still do Zoom meetings at the moment. I've already had a conversation with with my son's school about actually going to visit the school with my son towards the end of the term and just going to visit one night after school, just so that we can have a walk around the buildings and actually see the buildings. The, and have photographs as well, take photographs of the buildings because you can have them then over the summer holidays that will just help your child to realise where they've got to go for a certain, you know, a certain subject or anything like that. The other thing as well is the very often the year seven teacher, the head of year at year seven will come into a primary school. This is all good practice. So it doesn't happen in every school, but in, in a lot of schools, I know it does work. It does happen. So the year seven will come and have a conversation with the year six teacher and they'll have, you know, talk about children's behaviours, strategies and things like that. One of the most important things, I think, for children um, with developmental trauma, they will need to establish a relationship with somebody. They will need a go to person. In primary school, we're so it's so structured. It's such a nurturing place, you know, and the children are you know, you tell the children what they've got to do. This is happening at a certain time. Then we're going to go and do this. And during the lesson, this is what we're doing now. We're doing this subject. This is what I want you to do. This is going to be your completed piece of work. And then we've got playtime. You've got, you know, your visual timetables and everything like that that go on. When they go to high school, they haven't got that. And that's a big thing because they're coming out of this nurturing, this out of this structure to a different sort of structure where there's a lot of independency required, moving from uh, room to room. Bearing in mind, children with you know difficulties with a working memory, they've got to try and remember their timetable. They have to be there. Very often it's five minutes. You know, you've got to get to one building to another. All of those things and meeting new people, new teachers, different teachers for every subject and then also having to try and establish different peers so they haven't even got sometimes you know, there might only be one or two people from out of their previous primary school that they're in a room with so they've got all these other faces as well and it's just a sea of faces it's frightening it's a frightening prospect so I think for a parent's point of view because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all of this with two hats. It's a teacher's hat and a, you know, a parent's hat. And so from a parent's point of view, I think establishing communication with the school, establishing a relationship with somebody, somebody that you can speak to 
who will listen to you when you say to them, look, I have real concerns about this. What can we put in place? Whether that be, for example, having little stickers on their timetable that is the same sticker that they can put on their subject book so that they can see that it relates anything like that that can help I would suggest parents do I really would and I think schools are becoming more and more helpful and I think they're understanding just how difficult the transition can actually be from primary to high school interestingly I've spoken to a couple of people different people at at, at high schools and in different high schools and they said because of lockdown the children in year seven this year have pretty much stayed in those rooms it's the teachers that have actually moved and these are neurotypical children you know I'm talking just just on a general level now that they have both said that the impact that this has had on the children on year seven children has been that they've been calmer so they are actually considering now keeping this as an as a natural thing for when year sixes move to year seven that it would actually be a calming experience. And then from year eight, they, they've already been in the, the school building for a year, then to go and be more, you know, have more of the independence. I think if that can happen for, you know, across all high schools, I just think that would be absolutely fantastic because it just stops. It's an extra worry, an ex- extra anxiety that our children haven't got to worry about. The teacher will come to them. They will get used to a teacher coming in, a different teacher coming for each subject. If they've got that, but they're still in that same place, I just think it would be a, a real winner for schools to do that. I really do. Well, I, I agree. But tell me, are there any resources that COECT offers people that, you know, to help them through all the problems that we've been discussing today? Do you know, we have a great resource that sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet and I don't, (laughs) but but it's something that myself and Jane Mitchell have worked really hard on. And we've got something called the School Transition Pack, um, which is an excellent, I'll say myself, it's an excellent resource. (laughs) It is actually, I've read it myself, it's brilliant. Keep going. (laughs) But we've actually covered as much as we could for transitions from preschool right the way through to further education as well. We've done all of that and just some good practices some good strategies in there as well that you can actually use so hopefully that would help there are other things as well we've also got books which Rosie and Sarah they should have done and Rosie Jeffries and you know which is about William and the uh, wobbly you know uh, and the bad day those sort of things William and the the, uh, bad day is a great storybook to share with a child you know and for parents to use as well to actually understand that particularly for children that mask, for example, you know, that mask their behaviours, those compliant behaviours, who can actually understand that things do go wrong at school, but we're there as a therapeutic parent. We will be there and we will get you through as much as we can. This information will be in the show notes. So anybody who's listening to this and, and really wants to, to find these resources, just go to the show notes and the links will be in there. Yes. So this, Sammy, this has been such an amazingly detailed and enlightening chat. Thank you so much. I'm sure that it's going to help people who are really worried about what they're going to do with their children, moving them from the home situation into a classroom. So many thanks for this. To find out more and to access help, please visit our website, coect.co.uk. And if you'd like to receive this podcast every week, just press the follow button 
on Apple or Spotify or wherever you found this podcast. And please leave a review for the podcast. It'll help other people find us and benefit from our advice. Bye for now. <laughs>